in a few weeks, we're going to have our harvest offering. In one weekend, we're going to do something that's just almost unheard of across the world in churches. We're going to take up about $2 million to fund the preaching of the gospel all across this country and literally all across the world. And so I have chosen a special series of sermons to help get our hearts ready for that offering. And to begin, I'm going to have a Bible quiz that requires audience participation. So when I call out a phrase, I want you to fill in the blank based on your knowledge of the Scriptures. So here we go. Adam and Eve. Eve. Good answer. Okay. Cain and Very good. Noah and Okay, you're doing well, but I'm throwing you softballs. A little bit harder. Amram and... A few of you got that. Jochebed. Amram and Jochebed were the parents of Moses. So what I already know is that all of you that said, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, some of you got to Exodus. Good for you. Okay. David and... Who said Bathsheba? Somebody said Bathsheba. I don't know who you are. You know who you are. And after this sermon, we're going to have prayer offered by our elders. And you're going to want to take advantage of that. The right answer was David and Goliath. Finally, Jonah and... Everybody thinks of the whale when they think of Jonah. The story of the man swallowed by a great fish, which makes it, for many, a hard story to swallow. When the skeptics beat up the Bible, few books are more black and blue than the little book of Jonah that you want to turn to right now. But you see, the real problem in the book is not the great fish. It's the great God. The man who wrote this book wasn't wanting us to wrestle with, can a man be swallowed by a fish? He wants us to wrestle with, will a man allow himself to be swallowed by the mission in the heart of a great God? And so, we're going to dive into the book, pun intended, and ask the question, why would a man say no when God says go? So the first three verses read like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, right off the bat, he's telling you who his father was because he wants you to know I'm telling you about a real guy. You can check the records. His name was Jonah. His father was Amittai. And the word of the Lord came to him, go to the great city of Nineveh, And preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So right off the bat, we've got some big questions to deal with. We're going to deal with the less important question first, even though it's the one most people ask. This is a true story. 
Now, you'll notice that a lot of people will say, back then, ancient peoples, they, they preached their values through fables and myths and legends. And that's what the story of Jonah is. But it doesn't read like a myth or a fable. The city was called Nineveh, not Narnia. And it was a real city. And even the most secular historian has to admit, in the middle of the 8th century, when this story is dated, it was a great city. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which at that time dominated the world. It wasn't just a great city, but just like the text says, everyone has to admit, it was a wicked city. The Assyrians dominated through cruelty and intimidation. And I don't even want to go in this audience into the details of the kinds of things they were famous for. You can look it up for yourselves. Let me just say that later the prophet Nahum sent to that city said this, you are a city of blood and when you fall all the nations will clap because who hasn't felt your endless cruelty? It was a great and a wicked city. And the man was just as historical as the city. Because if you know anything about the ancient Hebrew historians, they were meticulous in keeping their genealogies and their official records. They never put a fictitious name in their accounts. Now that's important because... Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. A little history lesson. When the kingdom of Israel divided into a southern and a northern kingdom, uh, the northern kingdom was ruled by a succession of wicked kings. Now, about 180 years after that division, there's a man named Jeroboam II, and he's wicked. And God sent prophets like Micah and Hosea to warn them of their cruelty. And it's during that time that we read these words in 2 Kings chapter 14. He said that Jeroboam was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labal Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah is a real 8th century prophet who got the rare assignment of actually prophesying some good news to the northern kingdom. Because everyone else God sent just preached condemnation for idolatry and atrocity. But Jonah got to say, hey, good news, the borders of the kingdom are going to expand. And it made him pretty popular. If you had had a People magazine on the most popular preachers of the northern kingdom, Jonah would have been on the cover. He was a real man. He lived in a real time. And he was sent to a real city. And you might say, I have no problem with that. But the rest is just too fishy. Maybe so. But apparently, Jesus could swallow it. Jesus trumps all other scholars when it comes to the Old Testament. And Jonah is the only Old Testament character with whom Jesus directly compares himself. 
He's getting criticized. People are saying foolish things about him. And Jesus says something that almost no one who rants on Facebook or in their blogs has read. Jesus said, be careful. You're going to be held into account for every useless and foolish word you've uttered. And then he said this, Matthew 12. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus believed Jonah was real. That the revival at Nineveh was real. In fact, Jesus said at the day of judgment, people that repented at that revival are going to critique you for not repenting when a greater preacher showed up in your presence. But more than that, Jesus tied the reality of his death and his resurrection to the veracity of the Jonah story. Now what value is a sign if it's just an allegory? See, Jesus saw in the Jonah story a type for his own death and resurrection and every other type about the death and resurrection of Jesus in the Old Testament was a real historical event. You see, the real issue here is not the historicity of this story. The real issue is the believability of miracles. Can things happen in history that supersede the laws of nature? That's why I don't put any stock in needing to go find some story. Well, in the 18th century, a guy fell overboard and they found him two days later in the belly of a fish. And that proves Jonah. No, it doesn't. What if it said a big fish uh, or a big bird picked him up and carried him off? You don't make the story right by proving it could have happened within the laws of nature. The big fish is a problem if you've got a small God. This book was written to be read by people who believe Genesis 1 verse 1. That there was nothing in the beginning but God who spoke and everything appeared. This book was written to people that believed in a creator. And who didn't have a problem with the Creator doing whatever He wanted with His creation. Now, that's my worldview. And I will admit, my worldview requires faith. But so does yours. Whatever it is. Say, well, I don't believe in a Creator. Okay? Then what you believe is that there was nothing... 
And nothing somehow did something to nothing and something appeared. And this something that appeared out of nothing suddenly began to mysteriously mix with something to become life-giving, self-replicating parts. Don't tell me you aren't acting on faith either. Every worldview that accounts for the existence of creation requires faith. My worldview believes in a design and a designer. And so I'm going to treat this story like historical narrative. And I'm going to put the emphasis where the book puts it. Not on a great fish, but on a great God. The fish is only mentioned in three verses in the whole book. God is mentioned 39 times. This story is not about a man escaping a fish. This story is about a man trying to escape his own God. Because when the people read the story the first time, the big shock wasn't the fish. The big shock was God told a prophet to go. And the prophet said no. But Jonah ran away. Why? You see, when those first readers got that book and it said they went down to Joppa to get on a boat, every Hebrew would have said, he did what? Hebrews hated the water. The sea was where everything evil existed. This is through the Bible all the way to the end of Revelation. The sea is where evil lives. Jonah is the only person in the whole Old Testament that ever gets out on the Mediterranean Sea. What is motivating this guy? Well, no doubt the, the mission would have been difficult. Just getting to Nineveh would be hard. And it would be dangerous. These people are the dedicated enemies of Israel. And they are cruel and wicked people. And it's not going to help his public image. He's going to lose his status as most favorite preacher. If he goes to Nineveh. And and by the way, when it says he was running from the Lord. Now Jonah has read the Psalms. He knows that you can't go anywhere and escape the presence of the Lord. He's not trying to escape the presence of the Lord. He's trying to escape the service of the Lord. Because isn't that the right thing to do? When the Lord is wrong. You see, I'll tell you why Jonah ran away. He knew what God was up to. And when you get to the end of the book, and the city of Nineveh is spared by the mercy of God, Jonah is furious. And he says to God in chapter 4, verse 2, Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry. You're filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. 
Now, Jonah is a prophet. And Jonah knows it's God's right to send prophets on missions. But what if the mission isn't right? Jonah knows what God's up to. God does not need Jonah if he wants to destroy Nineveh. Jonah knows that by sending him to preach against Nineveh, God is actually for Nineveh. That if he preaches and they respond, God will get his heart's desire and not destroy Nineveh. And Nineveh needs to be destroyed. Nineveh deserves to be destroyed. And Jonah found the mission of God hard to swallow. See, God wanted what was best for Assyria. And an ardent nationalist like Jonah didn't think that was best. We'll see next time when he's on that boat and the sailors start to talk to him. The first words out of Jonah's mouth are these. I am a Hebrew. Jonah desired the good of his nation more than he desired to take good news to other nations. He didn't share God's concern for the world, and he was ready to go to the end of the world. To keep God from making a big mistake. He lived in Israel. Now Nineveh was going to be a pretty major journey to the east. Let me show you where Jonah decided to go. Tarshish was literally in the Jewish mind. The end of the world. In the other direction. What do you do when God wants you to do something you think is wrong? Well, you say, I just won't go there. And you go to Chipotle instead. You know, they're building a Chipotle right across the street from this campus. And right down the street, a new Dairy Queen just opened, which proves God is showing favor on this place. (laughs) Now, why are Chipotle's and Freebirds and Subway and Witch Witch and Pie Five, these new style of restaurants, so popular? It's a genius concept. You watch your food prepared right in front of you. And you tell the person, I want this, but I don't want that. That I can swallow. That I don't want to eat. And we run from God more than we think we do. Because more than we realize, we decide what parts of God's agenda we will swallow. And what parts we won't. I'm Jonah. You are too. And we all, if we're honest, wrestle with parts of God's will where we say, I just don't want to go there. For some of you, it's the way you express your sexuality. 
And God has said, here's my will. I created sex for a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage. And some of you don't think that's best for you. So you just don't go there. For some, it's the way you handle your finances. I got a really ugly letter, as ugly as I've gotten in a long time recently. You remember about a month ago when I said we need to have a makeup contribution? I got this blistering letter saying, you can't tell me the Bible says I'm supposed to tithe. I didn't even talk about tithing. But since you brought it up. (laughs) This letter said, tithing was for the law and we're not under the law. No, tithing was before the law. Go read about Abraham. And then try to explain to me why under grace you want to offer God less than you would if you were under law. Tithing was from the beginning of the Bible the way to say, God, you are first in my finances. And some people say, I'm just not going to go there. For some, it's the way we handle our hatred. Somebody wounded you. Somebody betrayed you. Somebody broke a promise to you. And God is the God of reconciliation. But God, in this situation, that's not best. I might know more about this than you do, God. I'm not going there. And for some, it's our addiction to porn or to work, to alcohol or to popularity. And we need to get some help. But we just don't want to go there. I'm Jonah. And you are too. And for a lot of us, Since I'm already on thin ice, let's just take one more step. (laughs) For a lot of us, at a level deeper than we realize, it is our love for our national identity that borders on idolatry. Many of us are Americans first and Christians second. We get more excited about the flag than we do the cross. And even right now in the very part of the world where Jonah was sent, our country has enemies. And deep down we have glee when we hear they are destroyed. Because they deserve to be destroyed. And we don't want to hear that God cares for them as much as He does for us. More than we think, we harbor feelings and we make choices that basically imply, God, you're really good and you're really smart most of the time. But sometimes, you're just wrong. The book of Jonah isn't written to tell us we need to learn what God wants. It's written to make us face the truth that sometimes we know what God wants. But we just don't want to go there. It's not asking if a man can live inside a fish. 
It's asking if an outwardly religious but inwardly rebellious spirit lives inside me. And so here's two bigger questions. Number one, who is your Nineveh? In his best-selling book, The Telling Room, Michael Paterniti goes back to the ancestral village in Sicily of his family. And every day he sees this old woman that makes this long walk up a steep hill to a cemetery. Because of her frail frame, it takes her several hours to get up there and come back. And so we ask the people in the village, what great sorrow motivates her? And they say, it's not sorrow, it's hate. Her arch is buried there, and she goes up every day, rain or shine, to spit on that grave. And I wonder, more than we realize, how much of our story is identified by who we hate. By who our enemies are. Jonah's story was wrapped up in his absolute certitude of who his enemy should be. And he ran from his enemies. Here's the problem. We serve a Lord that ran to his enemies. The Bible says, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. So if we're going to be like Jesus, we're supposed to run to the people we want to run from. That means some of you need to run back to your marriage. You say, well, our marriage is okay. Your marriage is stuck. And you've settled. Because the hard work of building a better marriage... Is something you just don't want to go there. For some of you, it's that person that you just don't want to forgive. For some, it's that person down the street that doesn't look like you, doesn't talk like you, doesn't vote like you. But you never assume that your enemies are God's enemies. You see, it's not just enough to affirm God's moral will. We need to affirm God's global will. Will And God has a heart for the world, even the world in your neighborhood. And that means if you follow Jesus, you are going to hear sometime in your life very clearly God say to you, go. And when the Nineveh call comes, the boat named anywhere but Nineveh will always be waiting at the dock. And that's the second question. Where is your Tarshish? Where's that place you run to, to avoid what God wants you to do? Is it your career? Your hobby? You know, for some people, it's religion. God, I'm not going to put you first with my finances, but I will read the Bible every day. I'm not going to share my faith with that guy at work who's a jerk, but but I'll join a small group. There will always be a boat at the dock. But don't expect God to give you peace in your heart 
about selected obedience. God is determined to relentlessly pursue rebels. Here's why. Because God does not take no for an answer. You see, if God's only focus here was Nineveh, He would have just found someone else to go. But God is after Jonah. He comes after Jonah, not because He needs Jonah, but because Jonah needs God. And so do we. Because we are never going to become our best until we agree with what God says is best. And so you can leave. But God's not going to leave you alone. I did some research this past week on a statue I had heard about by Michelangelo called the Rodonini Pieta. He worked on it for over 10 years. In fact, he worked on it six days before he died. He never was satisfied. He never could get the stone to cooperate. It never would become what he envisioned. And one art historian said, here's the deal. The artist wants it to become art. But sometimes the stone just wants to stay a stone. And you and I are God's masterpieces. And he's not going to take no for an answer. And he's going to chip away. And he's going to chip away to reveal that image of Christ deeply embedded in you by the Holy Spirit. He's going to chip. He's going to chip. He's going to chip. Until you are finally swallowed by the heart of And will of God. You can run from God. But you can't outrun God. So maybe. You should get off the boat. And get on your knees. I'm going to pray over you right now. And in fact. As I pray. If you think the Spirit's calling you. You might even want to get. On your knees. And so, Father, we're asking right now for illumination from the Holy Spirit for those ways in our lives where we have harbored a Jonah spirit, where we have allowed obedience in most of your wishes and will to cover the fact that there's a part of what you're asking where We just haven't gone there yet. We're not even sure you know what's best. And we've gotten so good at this, God, we don't even always realize all the ways we're doing it. So we need illumination from the Holy Spirit to reveal in us those parts of our heart where Jonah is in charge. And so, Father... Swallow us up in your grace and your mercy and your will for the world, especially 
that part of the world. We don't want to visit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand up. We're going to have upstairs and downstairs prayer leaders. And I'm going to invite you as we sing this song to come to them to to confess what God is putting on your heart right now. To confess Christ and be baptized. To come and ask Him to reign.